This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. You all, there are so many reasons to love the Word of God. Indeed, we're in a psalm study right now, and the first psalm, Psalm 1, talks about how we meditate on the Word, on the Scriptures, night and day. And of the many, many reasons to love the Word of God, I want to put one in front of you this morning, is that throughout the Bible, and in our focus this morning in Psalm 4, the Word of God teaches us, and the Word of God empowers us to respond to the inevitable crises that come into our lives. So if you are follower of Jesus, you already love the Word of God, I hope this morning it's just like a well-cured log to throw on your Bible bonfire, all right? But I'm also assuming that some of you are not there. Either you've known the Lord, but you, you had a season away from God's Word, or you're new, you're exploring the Christian faith. I hope this morning will persuade you that you do not want to go through this beautiful and perilous life without giving yourself to Jesus and giving yourself to the study and the knowledge of God's Word. All right, Psalm 4, how to handle a crisis. Turn with me in your bulletin. Usually we work right out of our Bibles. You bring your Bible. Um, we have Bibles here. But this morning I want to use a translation that's specific to our prayer book. As our tradition, Anglicans, we have a prayer book that we use. So I've never preached out of the prayer book. I'm not really preaching out of the prayer book. I'm preaching a psalm, which is the Bible. And much of the prayer book is Bible. But your bulletin is going to help you the most because that's the translation we're going to work out of in Psalm 4. This is a poem. So there are several places in the Bible that tell us about how to handle a crisis. Some of them are a history, a lot of history or historical narrative throughout the Scriptures. There are letters. It's its own genre that's written, talks a lot about how to handle crisis. But this morning we have a poem. And we're going to have a poetic experience as we engage this part of the Word of God that poetically instructs us and empowers us as to how it is that we respond to the crises that come. Let's organize this poem so we can kind of understand it, okay? So look at it in front of you. Verses 1 to 2, we're going to talk about how when we hit crisis, the first thing that happens, and David is the author of this poem. David, a great king of Israel, a soldier, a magistrate, royalty, a king, and also a songwriter, poet, a biblical singer-songwriter, starts out by saying, cry out to God. Now, he's doing this in real time. So we're actually watching in this poem, this is David responding to a crisis in his life, and then we learn and reflect on it. Cry out to God, verses 1 to 2. Second, as you cry out to God, the next step on your poetic pilgrimage, and by the way, like if you look at verse 8 and go, you're lying down in sleep, nice and peaceful and restful when you're in a crisis. We're not there yet. We've got to make a poetic pilgrimage together. We'll get to verse 8. But actually, to get to verse 8 and to that reality, after you cry out to God, you keep confidence in God. Because your confidence in God and his closeness is going to be profoundly shaken by a crisis. So we cry out to God, verses 1 to 2. We, we keep confidence in God, verses 3 to 5. And then we learn, after we're on our pilgrimage, that actually by the power of God and the gift of God, we can care more about God than our crisis. We can care more about the countenance of God. That means face. 
We can care more about the countenance of God. We can care more about the reality of God. We can reflect more on the reality of God than the details of our crisis. That is the grace of God. That is the power of God. And that's where we're going when we seek to handle a crisis in God. Amen? All right, so let's work on this together. Because David's going to tell us, he's going to proclaim, he's going to give testimony that there's a gladness that's greater. There's a a gladness that's greater than even the terrors that could come upon us in this life. Starts out, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. He starts out with a cry. It's a cry of the heart. Hear me, because when crisis comes, we'll speak specifically to David's crisis, but this is applicable to many kind of crises. When crisis comes, we immediately feel disconnected. We immediately feel isolated. So it's a cry, hear me, connect with me, God. Hear what I'm saying. Let me know that I'm not alone in this moment of peril that has just come upon me. Hear me when I cry. It's a heart cry. Now, these are songs. These are, these are poems. So in some ways, in a, in a way, what I'd like you to do when you're looking at your bulletin is, I'd almost like you to get into that brain space when you're on whatever particular streaming service you use, and you're like, I got to hear this song, whatever that song is. So I arrived home from a long uh, ministry trip, and you fly into O'Hare, right, my, my home airport, right, all of our home airport, have mercy on us. Fly into O'Hare, it's late at night already. I had to check my bag because I was way in the back of the plane, right? So I go down baggage claim, I'm super tired, it's late at night, then I gotta get the shuttle, then I gotta get to the remote car, then I got 45 minutes to drive home, right? So I finally get to my car and I'm like, okay, I know exactly what song on Spotify, what artist I've gotta dial up right now to just match what I'm feeling. That's what we do with music. It's one of the incredible gifts of music. And all genres of music can match that and connect with that reality of feeling. That's what's happening here. This, this is a song of, of feeling. It's a song of a cry of the heart. That's how we engage this scripture. It's also a psalm that the church has then used for the end of the day. We have, a, we have an end-of-day prayer service called Compline. The name is not helpful, but the actual prayers in it are beautiful and helpful. You can look it up. You can find it in the prayer book. Finish your day with Compline. And Psalm 4 is the prominent Compline psalm. Why? Because it talks about going to sleep at the end of the day. And it all talks about the fact that all of us face a battle, some days worse than others. And you come to the end of the day, you come to the end of the battle, may I now rest in safety and in sleep. So this is, this is a classic psalm for that. And the classic psalm is David cries out, hear me. Now, let's define crisis. This is no official definition of crisis. I'm making this up for the purpose of what I'm teaching on. There's catastrophic crisis. Right? It goes on and on and on. And often it's a crisis around the very nature of our lives, our work, our health. And then there's that kind of cloying crisis that just kind of sticks to you. It's, it's not horrible, but you're having a hard time getting over it. So I would define crisis in a spectrum of, you know, horrible to frustrating as anything that's preoccupying you after 24 hours. So it's like day two of whatever happened, the bad conversation, the financial news you didn't expect, the sort of weird engagement with your professor and you're not quite sure if they like what you're doing with your work or not, whatever it is, and you're like, you sometimes just walk away from this thing to go, oh, I don't care, and you don't, you don't really care. But actually, sometimes you walk away from them and 24 hours later, you're still thinking about them. All right, let's put that within the crisis spectrum. 
So in crisis, when that happens, what do we have to learn how to do? We have to manage our emotions because crisis creates emotion. Isolation, dread, numb. Numb's an emotion. Confusion. So how do we manage our emotions? What do we do? Well, the first thing we do is face the fact that you're having an emotion and cry out that emotion to God. Articulate it. Hear me, O oh God. O oh God of my righteousness. You set me free when I was in trouble. We'll get back to that in the second part. That's a really important phrase for how we actually uh, continue in his confidence. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. One of the key ways of doing this is it's really important to learn to write in a journal. And so you may say to me, I don't like writing in a journal. And I would say to you, too bad. <laughs> I really would. I'm not saying you have to like write Moby Dick in your journal, all right? But I actually would say that you need this. This is my current journal. I got it free from a seminar I went to because I'm always looking for journals, free journals, all right, because I use them. Why? Why do I use this? Well, it's very interesting. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal just like nine, nine days ago or so talking about how to manage your emotions. And in that article, based on scientific research, one of the key things they say, if you want to learn how to manage your emotions well, they, they called it microcognition, metacognition, journal your emotions. I thought that was fascinating because... Ignatius of Loyola taught that for the last several centuries, and we teach that in, in, our, in our transformation intensive. It's a part of how we disciple people here at Resurrection, to learn to journal your emotions. It actually turns out that scientific research shows what the saints of the faith have known for a long time, which is to say that when you're going to cry out, it's probably not enough just to say, I'm crying out. It's actually important. Get a journal. Write it down. I'm feeling this right now about this situation. And you go back and you read it later. You engage it. So we cry out the crisis, and then we cry out in verse 2, how long, O children of men, O people, how long? And we'll get to, that, to the object of the how long in just a moment, but it's really important that you understand, again, this is, this is, these are prayers for real life. That when crisis hits, and now you're past 24 hours, you start wondering, how long is this going to go? How long am I going to be miserable about this? With every diagnosis, we're always begging a health professional for a prognosis. We want to know how long. Give me milestones. Let me know when I might feel better. Let me know when the situation in my job is going to be better. How long? That's the heart. That's the cry of the heart. How long? And that's exactly what David is saying there. How long? It's so human. It's so real. Now, the specific crisis that David is speaking to is a crisis of false accusation. How long will you blaspheme my honor, how long will you speak against my honor? Seek after falsehood. That's his presenting crisis, although this is germane for all kinds of crises. So he's cried out, but that is not enough. Crying out can have an initial catharsis. It can help us get hold of what we are feeling and begin to have some objectivity with what's happening to us. But then David moves from crying out to keeping confidence. Keeping confidence in God. Look at verse 3, you all. Know this also. This is almost like a self-talk. Now, I like, I think self-talk's important, but it always reminds me of the phrase baby steps from what about Bob? Um, now I just gave you that association, which wasn't probably helpful. Um, 
Okay, but this is the kind of self-talk, okay? It's like, know this. Okay, Stuart, know this about God. Know this, that the Lord has chosen for himself the one that is godly. Then he goes from an objective perspective to a personal one, uses the first person singular. When I call upon the Lord, he will hear me. I will have confidence in God. I will believe in God. Indeed, you set me free, back to verse 1, when I was in trouble. Okay, what's happening with those words? The translation isn't super helpful, and preachers love to critique translations, even though we ourselves aren't smart enough to do them. All right? But I think it's helpful here to, to understand more what's happening because these words are dynamic. You set me free. Probably a closer translation, according to scholars, is you give me space. Someone else called it roominess. You give me room. You give me space when I was in trouble. More specifically, closer to the translation, when I was constrained, when I was constricted. A perfect way to describe a crisis. When crisis hits, you're constricted. You're locked in. You feel trapped. You feel isolated. Give me space, he's saying, oh God. So when we have our confidence in God, the heart of our confidence is you have space with God. Space is just an oft-used word now in our American vernacular. We need space. Give me space. Hey, you're in a great space right now. It's, I, I like the use of it. I find it interesting. Well, that, this is the Bible word. Your confidence that God will come from getting space with God. You've got you've to objectify the crisis and the emotion that's coming. You've got to get close to God. You get space with God. This is exactly what the writer's doing. I know who God is. I know that when I call upon him, he will hear me. This is the first order of business when crisis hits. If it's a long walk, or it's a coffee, or it's time with a friend, in prayer, whatever it is, you've got to get space with God. And then in David's case here, and in the particular crisis he's in, which involve opponents, he only has to get space with God, verse 3. He has to get space from his opponents, verses 4 to 5. Look at this. Now, I, I would not have seen this, but I read different scholars, and they all argued that what's happening in the transition, particularly from verse 3 to verse 4, is that David is now, in an imaginary way, speaking to his opponents in a poetic way. They're not actually there, but exactly what he would say. Okay, quick question. How many of you have, I'm, 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 like, raise your hand, because it'll just be fun and awkward. How many of you have ever written an email that you didn't ultimately send? Yeah. Oh, there's people of incredible discipline in this room. <laughs> All right, let's, let's be more fun. How many of you have written an email or a text that you sent, and you regretted it later. <laughs> prayers, real prayers for real people, whatever our title is. But now we're getting real, right? Okay, so what's happening here is, you know, before you actually send that email or even draft it, what, the, what this is saying is you've got to get that out. You've got to say what you want to say to that person who's hurt your feelings or who has set themselves against you in that dynamic. But he's saying, speak it to God. And he's actually guiding us in what to speak to God. Go from self-talk to opponent talk, but do it in a godly, powerful way. Look what he says to his opponents. Look what he says to those who are slandering him. Here's what he says. Stand in awe. Get with God. I'm in a space with God because I'm in a space with God. I can now say to you, imaginative prayerfully, you need to get in a space with God. Stand in awe. Be with God and sin not. I don't want you to sin, opponent. Commune with your own heart upon your bed. In other words, Hey, when you're finally quiet at the end of the day and you're, you're falling asleep, think about what you're doing. 
Think about it. Offer the sacrifice of righteousness. In other words, a sacrifice of righteousness in this case would be give yourself to God. Give yourself to his word. He's actually saying this to his opponent. He's saying, put your trust in the Lord. This is amazing. He's working it out, but we're being told, okay, this is how you work it. That's how you keep confidence in God. Only somebody that has confidence in the power of God, only somebody that has confidence in the manifest presence of God, only somebody that has confidence in the actions of God can say to their opponent, know the Lord. That's how I'm going to get you. Know the Lord. Hallelujah. Can you see now why Jesus taught, love your enemies? Because he knew Psalm 4 and other teachings like that. Keep your confidence in God. Only a person confident in God can say that to somebody else. I got my space with God, and I got my space from them, and I'm actually going to bless that person that hurt me. Now, I'm going to pray that they think about what they did on their bed. May they not sleep. I mean, no, that's not, that's not in there. Right? But that's, that's what's happening here. It's very real. And yet it calls us to more, doesn't it? It gives us an incredibly beautiful challenge to keep confidence in God, to know this. And then he says, care. Let's go to verses 6 to 8. Now we're moving on our pilgrimage. We cried out to God, keeping confidence in God and the space we have with God. And he says, essentially, care more about God than your crisis. Countenance would be face. Presence of God. Look at this. There are many that say, who will show us any good. Lord, lift up the countenance, the light of your countenance upon us. Okay. This is incredible. Before we get to this word about the light of his countenance, what do we have? In verse 6, part A, the first part of verse 6, there are those who are saying, who will show us any good? Wait a second here. I thought we'd done our work. I thought we were now good with God. I'd merged through a crying out to God. I now have confidence in God. I should be on the confidence, you know, train. I'm like, chicka, 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 chicka. I'm moving. I've got momentum. I believe in God again. And then all of a sudden comes this intrusive thought. Boom. Wait a second. Who will show us any good? People are saying that. Even my friends are saying, dude, you've got it bad. Who's going to show you any good? Which, wait, wait, wait. Like, well, why would the poet, why would David do this to us? Why would he put this in the song? I thought we were moving toward a triumphal hymn. I'm, I'm ready to sing something glorious. Why would he do that? Because we do that? Because just when we think that we're good with God and we're clear about God, some dark, old, intrusive thought just crashes into our imagination, and we're like, what was I even thinking? Why was I ever confident in God? Who will show us any good? How will I ever get out of this situation? Isn't that amazing? It's meant as an intrusive thought in the poem itself. It's meant to capture you poetically and to go, that's exactly what I do. Which means this. This is how much God loves you. Maybe that isn't immediately clear. But the fact that he puts this in the Bible so that he knows how it works for you. And he knows the intrusive thoughts that sabotage the growth 
and the momentum that you were making in Jesus. And because he loves you so much, rather than you feeling ashamed, oh no, I'm doubting again, he's like, oh no, I, I knew that would happen. I knew you'd have an intrusive thought like that. I knew it would crack into your mind and take over again and you'd start to spiral again. So when that happens, then what do we do? We're back to crying out. We're back to crying out in the second part of verse 6. It's so beautiful. Lord, lift up the light of your face. Lift the light of your countenance upon us. Jesus, I'm going to actually focus. Now that we, we know the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, he's the true image of the Father, Paul teaches us in Colossians. So this light of his countenance is the light of the world. It's the light of Jesus himself. What we actually have here is an incarnational moment. It's pointing to the full incarnation of God in Jesus Christ that will be revealed, that we ourselves now know. And we're saying when that moment comes, I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to look for the light of his face and the light of his presence. And the light of his face, the light of his presence is going to completely reject. Boom, bam, kick out that intrusive thought. Hallelujah. You're putting gladness in my heart. That's your agency, Father. Intrusive thoughts are met in God by disruptive grace, a disruptive gift, the gift of gladness, the gift of joy that makes no sense because of your external circumstances and the crisis that you're in. But an intrusive thought is met by disruptive grace. Hallelujah. He puts gladness in our hearts. See, that's how much he loves you. Are you tracking with that? You can't put gladness in your own heart when you're in crisis. You can't even feel anything hardly. You don't even know what, what end is up. You don't know what's going on. It's, there's going to have to be a God that loves you so much and has incarnated himself in Jesus and gives you tangible realities wherein you can actually know he's with me. He's close. As a matter of fact, he puts gladness in your heart more than when others... Very likely his opponents, oil and wine and grain increase. Oil, wine, grain, those are all substantive matters. They're, they're celebratory elements, they're, they're substantive elements, they, they feed you, they're, they're part of, of joy as well. And he's saying the gladness of God is greater, more than. The closeness of God, the incarnation of God is greater than the crisis that is embroiling me even right now. And because of that, I actually have the joy of the Lord. This is the heart of the psalm, I think. I, I think to, to kind of get to the heart of this, of this psalm, I, I think we're, we're primarily in 6 and 7. I think eight's kind of a denouement. It kind of brings us to the very end. We'll mention that in just a moment. But this six and seven, this is, this is the incarnational moment in six and seven. The substantive moment that leads us to the fullness of Jesus himself. So how, okay, how then do we, if him putting in the gladness into our hearts is his agency, how can we prepare our hearts? How do we live a life so that that gladness can be known and received? There's a lot of things, a couple of things. First of all, very, very practically, pictures of Jesus. You need pictures of Jesus around you. 
Because he's incarnated, it's very appropriate for the church to have pictures of Jesus. We have a glorious picture of Jesus here. It's very important. That's the light of his countenance that's greater. It's just an image. It's just a painting, but it's a really important painting. I have lots of pictures of Jesus. We have lots at home and lots in my office because I am constantly trying to reflect on the light of his countenance more than the labors of a crisis. So, res artist moment. Res artists are my favorite. A res artist painted this for me many years ago. It's just a profile of Jesus. It's from a Rembrandt study. It's gold for the glory of Jesus, and it's just his side profile. It's really beautiful. It's right by my desk. So I look at that a lot. It helps me practice the psalm. You may not have a picture of Jesus in your home. I don't know. If you don't have one, you're, you're in for a great adventure. Why don't you just pray this morning, lead me to a great picture of you, Jesus. What picture of you would you have for me? See where he leads you. And then we need testimony. We've got to have testimony. We've got to have more than testimonies. Those who have actually faced the crisis in a very human and incarnational way in their own lives, in their own bodies, they can say, yes, he has put gladness in my heart more than when others' oil and wine and grain increase. We need testimonies of that. We surround ourselves with testimonies of that. That's, that's one of the reasons why we live our lives in the embodiment of Jesus' body, the church, where others have testimony. And we find those testimonies. Many of you know that one of my more than heroes is a woman named Amy Carmichael, missionary to India, early 20th century, gave her life to rescue primarily girls out of temple prostitution and, 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 and sex trade there in India. She did many other things as well. 50-year ministry, 30 years in, she has an accident. She injures her back. She cannot get out of bed. For the last 20 years of her life, she runs her mission from her bed. So when Amy Carmichael says that she has a gladness that overcomes her crisis, it's a testimony I'm going to listen to. It's an incarnated testimony that I'm going to take to heart. Here's what Amy says, and I am on a first-name basis with Amy. And Catherine and I call her Amy. What did you read in Amy today? Because we feel really close to her. Because she disciples us. And you need more than disciplers. Here's what Amy says. We can come, it's a longer quote, so just take a deep breath and listen. We can come, quote, to the places where our happiness does not depend, now she lists out, on the work we are doing, on the place where we are, our friends, our health, whether people notice us or not, praise us or not, understand us or not. No single one of the circumstances has any power in itself to upset the joy of God. But it can instantly and utterly quench it, that is, circumstances, crisis, if we look at the crisis and instead of up to the face of light and love that is looking down upon us, the face of our own God. It's rare that Jesus ever answers the question, how long, when we cry out. But the Bible promises that through art, through song, through music to the people of God, through holy communion, through baptism, 
the light of his countenance, his embodied countenance is ministered to us. And it also promises us that we are actually going to see his physical face one day. We're going to look at him face to face. We're going to say, that's exactly what you look like. I've wondered my whole life what you look like. But the light of your countenance makes it all worth it. They really were light and momentary afflictions. We'll say it to the Lord. And then we'll know rest, a Sabbath rest, a rest that we can know to a certain degree on this earth because he's put gladness in our heart. And then we can say, I will lay me down in peace and take my rest for you, Lord, only make me dwell in safety. Just exhale. I can know that now. And I will know that for eternity. Christians, that's how you face a crisis. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.